So once again, we welcome you here today for the Reseda Spring Study Day. Our speaker is Brother Con Mitzos of Australia. The overall theme for the weekend is Mary, the Handmaid of the Lord. This is Class 1, entitled, The Virgin Will Conceive, and it's based on Isaiah 7. At this time, we'll now call Brother Khan for his class, for the Khan. Well, thank you, Brother Tony. And good morning, our dearly loved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, our dear young people, and any friends that are amongst us, it's nice to have you in our company. Well, I bring with me the loving greetings of uh, your brothers and sisters that meet in the Woodville Ecclesia in Adelaide, South Australia, and uh, especially also uh, the regards of my wife, Sister Sue, who sadly uh, couldn't be with me today, so you've got the worst half of our, uh, ourselves a couple, but anyway... Um, we are looking forward to the opportunity of sharing with you a beautiful study from the scriptures in the life of Mary. Now, with our young people last night, and I must say I was really impressed. You should be proud of your young people. We had a beautiful class last night, and we actually started the study last night looking at uh, Gabriel's visitation to Mary, announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the beautiful response that Mary gave Behold the handmaid of the Lord in absolute uh, cooperation and submission and willingness to serve in whatever capacity was required of her in this amazing privilege that she was given. And her beautiful expression in her song and prayer of praise to Yahweh, which brought so many beautiful scriptures together. And it just made us appreciate just what a special person Mary was in her disposition her spirituality, and amazingly, she was a woman who really did understand the Scriptures, had a great knowledge of the Scriptures, and was therefore suitably chosen to bear God's special Son. Now, every study needs an introduction, and because this is our main session, uh, I'm going to say a few things just to introduce our study, and I hope you'll bear with me, because it is important for us to think about why we are here and why we open the Scriptures and study the Scriptures. We open the Scriptures and study the Scriptures because we believe them to be the Word of God. And therefore God is speaking to us. To us. And it is important that we are prepared to hear His voice today. To us. God spoke to people in the past, but He has left on record His Word so that anyone who reads it can hear messages that God has directed to any who have ears to hear. And we need to have ears to hear. This is not just information for us, there are messages contained in the Scriptures that God is trying to speak to us and speak to our heart. And we're going to look at Hebrews 4 and verse 12, particularly in light of, not now, in the light of the sword thrusts that we'll see were directed to Mary by the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that the Word of God is quick, means alive. It's a living Word. 
It's dynamic. It has power. The Greek word dynamis is the word from which we get our English word dynamo. It means explosive power that has the ability to transform. It's energy. It's God's energy. So these are not black letters on white pages. This is the word of God which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword because it can pierce through the veneer of the externals and get right to the heart of our personal issues and our thoughts which need to be revised, which need to be changed, which need to be modified so that the natural thoughts and the natural man can transcend to the spiritual man. And spiritual thoughts. Because remember the words of Isaiah who said, My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heaven is higher than the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts. And my ways above your ways, saith Yahweh. So we've got some work to do to lift our thinking from natural to spiritual. And if I was to summarize the the journey that Mary was going to be on, it was that very journey of transcending from natural circumstances and natural experiences and a natural relationship with her beautiful son to a spiritual relationship where she understood the depths and the breadths and the height of the word made flesh and what it was for her son to be called the son of God. So listen out for the messages to us because these things are written for our learning and our admonition. Lessons for us. So be ready to hear God speaking to you in our studies. Secondly, it is important for us to realise that, and we talked to our young people last night, that we are in training and preparation to be kings and priests of the administration of Jesus Christ. So that's our, that's our career path that we have chosen because God has called us for that very purpose. Now we are training, we're pre- preparing for that role in the future. We're going to be the administration of rulers and spiritual leaders that are going to work throughout this world on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring all of the world under the subjection of Jesus Christ's reign from Jerusalem We are going to be the kings and priests of the future age. But let us not forget that our sisters, our sisters are also going to be kings and priests in the future age. So in our present dispensation, Yahweh has made a distinction between man and woman and establish the principles of headship as we know and we need to respect those because they are important in terms of our development. But the principles of rulership and leadership still apply to our sisters and they still, as equally as the brethren, need to be Bible students so that that word has a power to make them eligible to become the rulers of the future age. So brethren, we need to appreciate that and not to diminish the importance that Yahweh has placed upon our sisters in the development that they will go through in our training program to be the leaders of the future age, kings and priests. Gender will make no difference in the, 
immortal state. But let us make sure that we appreciate Mary and many examples of faithful women in the scriptures are there for our sisters to take comfort and courage to know that their tasks are not just menial only. They also need to be Bible students. They need to be spiritually minded. And they also need to demonstrate leadership in their own personal righteousness. And if they are married, they have to demonstrate leadership in a marriage in the capacity that God has provided for them. And in a family, raising children and in ecclesial activities where it is appropriate for sisters to lead classes or to teach Sunday school or to preach the gospel. And bear in mind, you don't have to be on a platform to give a study or to give an exhortation. Yes, you do need to do that in an ecclesial context, but don't think, sisters, you can't give a study. You can't preach the gospel. You can't exhort just because you're not able to do that on a platform. You don't need a platform to do that. And Bible students make the best in all capacities of the expression of communicating God's message to others. They become the best ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's include our sisters in that role that we all hope to be part of. It is important also for us to recognise that the life of Mary is complete. The record of her life is complete because she's lived and died. And the record of all of the faithful right through to the first century is complete. But they didn't know a story was going to be written about their life. Remember the words of Job, he said, I wish that a book was written so that people could actually read about my experience. They didn't know that a book was going to be written and that God was going to outline all of their strengths and weaknesses for the benefit of succeeding generations. What if, what if, and I can't be certain of this, but what if the lives of the faithful from that time right through to the coming of Jesus Christ are going to be published for the benefit of the mortals. How will your life read if God was going to record your life like Mary's life and the life of other characters that we read? How will your story read? Well, there is a story because, as we know, our lives are recorded in the book of remembrance. So there is a record of our lives. Whether it's published or not, we don't know, but there is a record And because that is an unfinished record, because we are still living in the present and there's an opportunity for us, today might be the day that we need to change that story. If the story to this point, as we look back, is filled with regrets and disappointments and missed opportunities, we have the opportunity of changing the way the story ends. If the story has not started well. And so let's make sure that we appreciate that what we're reading about is faithful men and women that God worked with in the past and God hasn't changed. He's working with us now in the same way that he worked with Mary. In the same way and for the same reason. And so let us appreciate the work of God in our lives so that we also can have a story recorded that is a story that shows a response to the wonderful goodness and wisdom of God that's revealed. 
People have said to me, how can you do a series of studies on Mary? Well, there is a lot of information in the scriptures about her life. And so hopefully as we go through the studies right through to our exhortation tomorrow, you'll see the stories that emerges from the record. But it is important for us to recognize that there is a story there. God has actually written that story there. Maybe it's not easy to see the story and piece it all together. Maybe God's deliberately done that because he, because of his foreknowledge, may have anticipated, I shouldn't say may have, of course God can, but maybe the reason why it's written in such a way is because God knew what the apostasy would make of this faithful sister. And I was brought up as a Greek Orthodox, so I know all about the importance of Mary in the church. And it is the most... uh, uh, I would say blasphemous uh, doctrine, Mariolatry, because she is placed really above God. It, as, we, as we saw her, she was, God was this hard, austere man, but Mary was the person you could pray to who was compassionate and understanding because she was the mother figure. And so we prayed to Mary probably more than we prayed to God. But Mary is elevated to a status of, w- of which, of course, she has no place. And there is only one mediator between God and man, and that place is reserved for our Lord Jesus Christ. But what the church has made of Mary shouldn't worry us and shouldn't divert us away from looking at what the divine record has actually written concerning her, which is what we hope to do. Now, I'm going to ask for you to forgive me one thing. If I can ask for forgiveness in advance, I'm hoping that you'll grant me this But when I did the study of Mary, it was very tempting to be distracted into the lives of other characters that come into the story. And obviously the Lord Jesus Christ being the main character because he features prominently not only in Mary's story but in the entire scriptures. But because we have a limited amount of time and we want to tell the story of Mary, I need you to forgive me for not incorporating or including the other characters that feature in the story together with her. The one thing that we have to appreciate that Mary struggled with is what it meant that Jesus should be the Son of God. The biggest question of the day in which Mary lived was, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That comes from Matthew 22 and verse 42, if you're taking notes. It was the words of the Lord to the Pharisees. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That was the burning question of the day. It divided people. It caused animosity and friction and debate. And of course, for Mary, it was also a challenge for her to understand what it really meant for him to be the son of God. For Mary, of course, as we know, a woman who was his mother... You think of the struggle that she had to see her son as her father. Talking about transcending from the natural to the spiritual. Isaiah says that he would be an everlasting father. And Hebrews says, behold, I am the children which God had given me. So he was the mother of Jesus needing to understand that her son was actually her spiritual father. And that the one formed in her womb by the power of the Spirit would by the same power form her as the woman taken out of his side and he would give birth to her. 
to see the one that she brought up for God was really the one that was bringing her up for God. That the one that, uh, that she gave life to was the one from whom her life would come. That the one for whom she offered in Jerusalem the sacrifice as it was required under the law was the one who in that same city would sacrifice for her, but not just an animal, his own life. The one she took to present to Yahweh was the one who was going to present her to him. The one that she sought to find in tears because she had lost him was the one actually that was going to seek to find her who had been lost and restore her. The one that she had tried to restrain at one point under the influence of her children was the one who would finally restrain and redirect her. And the one with whom she attended a wedding was actually going to become her eternal bridegroom. Talk about a transition from natural to spiritual. That was the challenge that Mary was going to face and that will uh, be evident as we go through the story of her life. Jesus had business of his father's to do. That had to take priority. And in order for him to secure the redemption of the world, including his mother, he had to focus on that mission And sadly, because his mother had been influenced away from his role as his father's son, sadly that caused a division between them. But no son had greater love for his mother than did our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in the story of the life of this beautiful woman. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 7 and consider the circumstances of the prophecy that God gave concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to a man who was the king of Judah at the time, and his name was Ahaz. A very wicked king. He was that wicked, and he followed in the ways of the kings of Israel to the north, of whom there was not one good king recorded that he was actually called a king of Israel himself, even though he sat on David's throne in Judah. Now we, we have the record of um, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1 that the confederacy of, Jew, of uh, Israel in the north and Syria was going to be brought against Judah and they were going to suffer this attack of this confederacy. And in verse 2 we read, it was told the house of David. And I want you to note that term, the house of David. That term, the house of David, represents the descendants of David and the dynasty of David. It was told the house of David saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, that is the nation of Israel, the ten tribes to the north and his his heart was moved. And so they would be because if you uh, just come back just briefly to the record, which is the background to this invasion, which is 2nd of Chronicles 28, you'll read just how devastating this uh, invasion was. And um, you read in 2nd of Chronicles 28 and verse 5 that a great multitude of captives were brought to Damascus, that is, of Judah. And uh, Damascus has been in our news, hasn't it, with the uh, airstrikes overnight by the USA uh, on the chemical uh, factories in Damascus. Well, here's Damascus in our reading from 2nd of Chronicles chapter 28. A great multitude of captives 
In verse 6 we read that Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah and 120,000 in one day, which were all valiant men. You imagine the death of 120,000 of your key elite soldiers in your army. And then we read in verse 8 that they took away 200,000 women, sons and daughters and took away much spoil from them. And uh, so that was the devastation of this invasion. And the record in Second Chronicles 28 also tells us why. Uh, verse 19, Yahweh brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. And he's called king of Israel, as we say, even though he was king of Judah, because in verse 2 we read that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Back in verse 19, Yahweh brought Judah low because Ahaz had made Judah naked and transgressed sore against Yahweh. And in verse 22, in the time of his distress did he trespass yet more against Yahweh. This is that King Ahaz. So we've got a bit of an idea of what kind of king Ahaz was. And the amount of carnage he brought into the nation of Judah because of his wickedness and because of his evil. And even when Yahweh chastised him, he was that stubborn and arrogant and proud that he dug his heels in and trespassed even more against Yahweh. And he was foolish enough to seek help from Assyria. Look at verse 16. At that time, did King Ahaz send to the kings of Assyria to help him? And of course, they didn't. Um, in verse 20, Tiglath-Pilneser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. Verse 21, Ahaz took away the portion of the house of Yahweh and out of the house of the king and out of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. So what a fool he was to think that he could call on the services of Assyria to help him against the Syrian and the Israeli confederacy. And, of course, uh, as we know, they only made things worse. What a foolish man he was. A foolish king. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is sent to give a message to this king Ahaz. And it's interesting that uh, in verse 3, Isaiah goes with his son, Shear Jashub. And it's interesting for those of you who know the story of Second of Chronicles 28, because the word, the name Shear Jashub, you'll see in the margin, is the remnant shall return. Isaiah means the salvation of Yahweh. And you know what happened to those captives that were taken up into Israel? The prophet Oded inter- intervened, didn't he? And he had the captives return. And Shear Jashub's name means the remnant shall return. And uh, Isaiah means the salvation of Yahweh. And this is, of course, part of the Emmanuel prophecies that saw Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, as a man who prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and ultimately destroy the Assyrian, who was the major threat to the, uh, uh, to the kingdom as it was in those days. And so we have a parable played out of the return of the remnant which happened prior to the birth of Hezekiah. And it was the same in the Lord's day, because you, you remember a remnant returned out of Babylon prior to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we see today? Prior to the Lord's second advent, we've seen a remnant of the nation of Israel return back into their land. And Brother Thomas in Elbus Israel, remember, says that the pre-colonization of the nation of Israel 
the pre-adventural colonisation is a sign to us that the kingdom of God is near because the kingdom of God is the restored kingdom of Israel. And the commencement of the kingdom of God is the nation of Israel brought back into their own land. And here's a parable being enacted out here of 2 Chronicles 28, the the story of the return of the captives uh, with the prophet Oded ministering to uh, facilitate that and the birth of Hezekiah foretold here. Here's God now sending Isaiah and Shear Jashub to get a message to King Ahaz. And what is the message? Well, the message is in verse, um, verse um, um, okay, so verse six. So Syria and Ephraim have taken evil counsel, verse five. And their evil counsel is, let us go against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. And Yahweh sent Isaiah to tell Ahaz that despite the fact that the, the evil counsel was that they wanted to dethrone Ahaz from the throne of David, Isaiah was to tell Ahaz, thus saith Adonai Yahweh, it shall not stand. Neither shall it come to pass. So here's Yahweh giving Ahaz, this wicked king, a promise that despite this evil counsel and the confederate armies of Israel and Syria, that they are not going to get their way. They're not going to succeed. Even though damage was done, Ahaz would not be dethroned from the throne of David. And then verse 10 we read, Moreover, Yahweh spake again unto Ahaz, saying, So here's a subsequent message. Ask thee a sign of Yahweh thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So here's now Isaiah saying to Ahaz, okay, God has said, your throne is secure. I'm protecting you. Now here's another message. You've got an opportunity to ask for a visible demonstration, a miracle in the height or in the depth to demonstrate to you that God's promise of your safety is assured. Ask a sign, a visible demonstration. Who of us, if we were in Ahaz's place, wouldn't have asked for a miracle? I mean, how many times do people say, if I could only have just seen a miracle, I would dot, dot, dot. I would be converted. I would be a better person. Here's a man who was given an opportunity of seeing a miraculous sign. And of course, the sign in the heights and the depths is actually quite significant because this sign, as we're going to see, was actually God, who is the highest, conceiving in the womb of a woman who was of the lowest of the low in terms of society, was going to bring forth a son who was going to be a sign that God was going to preserve the throne of David for a king of his appointment. But be that as it may, he had an opportunity to ask, what's Ahaz's response I will not tempt. I will not ask, neither will I tempt Yahweh. Do you know, if there was ever a section of Scripture that reveals to us the merciful, long-suffering of God to try and work with a rebel, it's the story of God and Ahaz. 
I mean, would you waste your time with a man like that? Honestly, that's not our God. Our God is not human like us. He gave his son for the world. The world is a term that describes the world that is full of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that has nothing to do with God. God gave his son for the world. And Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet enemies, enemies, we were actually fighting against God. God gave his son. That's God. He will not give up just because we oppose ourselves or oppose him. And at the end of the day, if we stand before the judge and we are rejected at the judgment seat, none of us will be able to say with any integrity, God, you haven't done enough for me. None of us will be able to do that because God is at pains to tell us that as he works with his children, even his rebellious children, he doesn't give up on them when they turn their back on him. He will try until the day they die to turn them from their wickedness. And Manasseh is an example, a couple of generations later, of God working with a man who was an atrocious king. He was Hezekiah's son. And in the end... God saved that son. And that's all what God wants to do. He wants to save us from our sins. That's the very reason he gave the Lord Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. And Ahaz says, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to ask. I mean, I wouldn't want to put God to the test. And Isaiah says, hear now, O house of David. And there's our term, the term for a house of or a dynasty of descendants who sadly were astray from the truth. And we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 12 and see how the house of David is going to be converted. The house of David did not reflect the spirit of David. They were wearying the prophet and wearying Yahweh also. And Isaiah is told to say to Ahaz, even though you despise God and you won't accept that God is at pains to give you a visible demonstration of just how much he loves you, Ahaz, despite your evil, you're going to get a sign anyway. Adonai, which is the title of the Lord as ruler, the ruler in heaven himself, he's going to be personally involved in this sign. He's going to give you a sign, Ahaz, even though you don't want a sign, you're going to get it anyway. And the sign is, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth and conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God is going to be with men, Ahaz. Even if men don't want to be with him, he's going to be with them and he's going to save any who are willing despite their past. Despite what they have done, I'm going to save and I'm going to be with men. Now, it's interesting that she's called a virgin and we dealt with that in our class last night because we could have easily had the word woman or young woman, but her sexual status is referred to rather than her gender because God wants Ahaz to understand that no man is going to be involved in the conception of God's Son. 
No man. This was going to be God's son. And that's why he was born of a virgin. But there's something, obviously, that is fundamental. But there's something extra that we need to understand. If there was no man, where did that put the house of David? Where did that put the dynasty of David? As the paternal fathers or ancestors of Messiah. The house of David could never claim to be in the line of Messiah. Let me show you that. Just come to Matthew chapter 1. Because no man was going to be involved. Now in Matthew chapter 1 we have a record of the lineage of the, of the, uh, the guardian of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that his name is Joseph. And in Matthew chapter 1, we get to Joseph in verse 16. Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So what do we learn from that? We learn this, that if the kingdom of Judah had not lost its independence when God dethroned Zedekiah, that wicked and profane prince of Israel in Ezekiel 21, if the kingdom of Judah had not lost its independence, who would have been the rightful heir And who would have sat on the throne of David in Jerusalem? Joseph. This is the dynasty of the house of David recorded in Matthew chapter 1. From David we have all of his sons, Solomon and Rehoboam and all of the sons that sat on David's throne right through to Zedekiah and then we go through the captivity and we come to Joseph. So if the kingdom of Judah had not lost its independence, Joseph was the king of Israel, the king of Judah at least. And his firstborn son, who was heir to the throne, was James, whose name is Jacob in the Hebrew. James is the Greek equivalent. Now in verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Matthew's telling us, here are the circumstances of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, and this word is worth underlining, before they came together. In other words, the house of David or the dynasty of David never reached Messiah. Ahaz was given a rebuke in the sign that he refused. And the house and the dynasty of David got this close. But before Joseph married Mary, Mary was found of a child with the Holy Spirit. And we know that this was poetic justice to Ahaz. And Ahaz as a typical representation of the house of David. We know this, the circumstances were a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 because Matthew actually quotes it in verse 22. The manner... Of the birth of Jesus, Matthew has recorded, was done, verse 22, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. How about that? Isn't that incredible? 
Matthew has taken us through the kings and he says, now I want you to know they got this close, but God says no further. Before they came together, Joseph was prevented from connecting the house of David with Jesus. So how was he the son of David? Well, if you come over to Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy of Mary recorded in Luke chapter 3. And this genealogy, recorded by Luke, helps us to appreciate that there was a lineage which was preserved, which started right back in the very beginning, because Mary was selected according to the foreknowledge of God right from the very beginning. That's where this genealogy genealogy ends, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 3 and verse 38. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And in the 77 names that are recorded in this, in this lineage, seven being the covenant number, the Lord Jesus Christ was the son of David through Nathan, a son born to Bathsheba. Not Solomon. And you'll see when, that, uh, when you uh, go, through the, uh, go through the genealogy that the Lord Jesus Christ um, was born through the line of David but instead of through the royal um, seed, through Solomon, uh, was born through David's other son, Nathan, whose name, incidentally, means a gift. How appropriate is that? Solomon's name means peace. And, of course, we know that Jesus, as he came up to the city of Jerusalem on his last journey to the city before he was crucified, he said that there would be no peace given to the people of Israel because they'd rejected Messiah. So Solomon was not an appropriate person to connect Jesus with David. But Nathan was because he was God's gift nonetheless. Now verse 23, for those of you who are uncertain about whether what I'm saying is correct, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, and so we go forward. Well, it's obvious that this is the lineage of Mary. If you can compare it to um, Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that. But the Greek, if I can paraphrase the Greek, and um, being Greek, I have no... um, Uh, privilege above anyone else in being any authority on the Greek language. Uh, All of the Greek scholars and our uh, lexicons do a fantastic job to help us understand Greek. But if I can just paraphrase that verse for you as it reads in the Greek, Jesus himself began, that is his public ministry, at 30 years of age, being reckoned by law as the son of Joseph, which was the son-in-law of Heli, the father of Mary. And most of the commentators agree that that's how the Greek should read. So this is actually the genealogy of Mary. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ born uh, through this wonderful uh, lineage, through Nathan, and then the genealogy goes through um, to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is fascinating is that if it wasn't for the daughters of Zelophehad, that are recorded in the Numbers record, making a request to Moses concerning a predicament that they were in, the inheritance of the throne of David could not be passed on to the Lord Jesus Christ through Mary. Because prior to that, the inheritance was passed on through a son to succeeding generations. But you know the story? 
And the daughters of Zelophehad had came to Moses and said, Our father died, leaving no heir. And there was only daughters born to Zelophehad. So what's going to happen to our father's inheritance? And Moses said, Wait and I'll inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh came back and said to Moses, The thing which the daughters of Zelophehad had asked is a good thing. And God added to the law of inheritance a provision so that the inheritance of the father can be passed on through a daughter. And isn't that incredible? These women were so faithful. They lived in a generation that died in the 38 years of the wilderness wanderings as a faithful remnant within that nation. And they got to the borders of the promised land. They were waiting for their inheritance. They believed that they were going to be in the kingdom and Joshua was going to take them into the kingdom. And because of their faith and certainty that they would be in the kingdom, they sought an inheritance in the promised land. And the Lord did not make provision for that. And so God made a provision, and you'll read that in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. It's an amazing record. And God actually made that a statute. And you think of the providence of God that worked all of those years before to enable the Lord Jesus Christ to be heir to David's throne through his mother. How multifaceted and how wise is God to work so that he ticks every box and makes everything so perfectly appropriate for the circumstances. Yes, the virgin birth was because it was going to be his son and not the son of a man. But how appropriate was that rebuke to the house of David, to Ahaz, no man. And so Matthew records, before they came together, Mary was found with child. Just come back to Matthew chapter 1 because there is some interesting detail concerning the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And um, you, you know the three sets of, of 14 generations that we read of. What's fascinating is if you look at that, uh, you'll see that there's 14 uh, names mentioned in the first generation from uh, Abraham uh, to David. There's 14 generations from David to Babylon, but there are only 13 generations from the carrying away uh, into, um, into Babylon unto Christ. 13. Now, that couldn't be a mistake because there's three sets of 14, which is twice seven for those of you who are into numbers. But it was intended, obviously, in terms of the genealogy, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be the 14th in that sequence of 14, 14, 14. So God intended that Jesus be included to make three sets of 14, but he stopped to prevent that happening to fulfill the prophecy that he had given through Isaiah to Ahaz concerning the fact that no way was the house and lineage of David, the dynasty of David, going to be connected with Messiah. That's how precise God is in his dealings. And that's how careful we have to be with the scriptures because God does not make mistakes. Everything is done precisely and in order. And that's why in Isaiah 11 we read that Jesus would be a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Why do we read that? And that's why we read also in Isaiah 53, that the Lord was uh, a root out of dry ground. Why was that? Well, because the nation of Israel was like a tree. Its roots 
were in the forefathers, and Jesse represented the father, the fathers of David, and the kingdom continued like a trunk. And then it forked, didn't it, into the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and then branched out with all of the, the, the dynasty of each of those kings. And what did God do? Did he connect one branch all the way through? No, he started with a root that came right out of the base of the tree. And that's why that's written. Matthew is a fulfillment of the fact that the Lord did not come through this lineage of the dynasty of the kings, of either Israel or Judah. God bypassed them all, went right back to the roots of the tree. And in Ezekiel 17, he's the young twig that is referred to there. And all of those prophecies are so consistent with what we read in the fulfillment of the two genealogies, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. Now, in uh, just check where I am. In verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, so I'm back in Matthew chapter 1. And what's the time we have to finish, Brother Tony? One minute. We've got one minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's okay. So, very quickly, and we can finish on this. We read that in verse 18, when Jesus, as his mother uh, Mary, was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. Now, the word found in the Greek is in the aorist, indicative, passive voice. And those of you who know anything about Greek syntax will know that that means she was found by somebody else to be pregnant, and that somebody else was Joseph. And we know that that caused a great amount of distress. Because Joseph, having discovered that Mary was pregnant, we read in verse 19, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, he was a just man, and we can deal with that in our next session in a little bit more detail, that's fine. But he exercised justice with, with mercy, not wanting to make... Mary, an example in public. But the word minded is a very strong word and it's a word that means to decide and it's a word that's also used concerning the determination of um, Barnabas which uh, was to take John Mark with them on the missionary journey over which Paul and Barnabas were separated because the contention we read was so sharp between them. It's the same word, minded. It was a determination that separated Paul and Barnabas. And Joseph was minded because he was a just man and would not compromise the truth. And it shows his integrity in putting Yahweh above his fiancée. Even though he loved her and wanted to marry her, he knew that it was a matter of personal integrity. And even though no one else was going to know but him and God, he determined that to uphold the righteousness of God, he had to divorce Mary and he was determined to do that how difficult that would have been to to Mary and there's no voice of protest that comes from Mary no attempt to try and explain and if she did 
it's evident that Joseph didn't believe her story, but we're not able to go into that because the record doesn't tell us. And I don't like embellishing the record with possibilities that are not there for us to know for certainty. But whether she told Joseph the story about how she came to be visited by Gabriel or whether she didn't, Joseph determined that she was going to be divorced. And thankfully, as a result of divine intervention, that was prevented as the angel Gabriel came to Joseph and told him uh, in verse 20, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And just for those of you who are um, keen to know what the word conceived is, you'll see in the Greek it's begotten. And the words could be translated, Joseph, don't worry, God is the father of this child. Thanks.